0: Of historian-splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. Since a number of listeners said that they liked my end of year comment and reflection at the end of 2020, I figured I would try to do the same sort of thing now at the end of 2021 as this country and others around the world are possibly starting to come out at least of the main, most impactful period of the crisis of the pandemic. So what I want to do now is make a few comments, trying to sort of make sense of what's happened over the past year, particularly in light of earlier crises in the past and what happened in their aftermath, crises like wars, pandemics, natural disasters, and then comment particularly also on the movie It's a Wonderful Life, which is something I've mentioned before in some of my writings, and that turns 75 years old this year, and which I think can shed some light and help to kind of put in perspective the peculiar juncture that we're at now, coming out of this pandemic, as the movie was made in 1946, very consciously and explicitly dealing with the aftermath of World War II and how Americans were adjusting to the world after that crisis. And then lastly, I will thank my patrons, who as of the moment when I'm recording, number 116. So, some of my listeners might remember that when the pandemic was in its first wave back last spring, in the spring of 2020, I commented that we should not expect life or society to go back to normal, in quotation marks, and that normal, in a sense, was an illusion to begin with, much less was it an attainable goal to return to. Well, Others disagreed, others whose opinions, I might expect, saw things differently, and in fact, the French novelist Michel Houellebecq, who is known for his sort of cynical and jaundiced view of modern society, he made waves when, in an interview in April 2020, he was asked whether he thought that the world was going to change as a result of the pandemic, And he said, quote, I do not believe for a half second the declarations that nothing will be like it was before. We will not wake up after the lockdown in a new world. It will be the same, just a bit worse. And then he went on to comment about the pandemic in particular, saying that the crisis was turning out to be, quote, remarkably normal and that the virus was banal and has, quote, no redeeming qualities. It's not even sexually transmitted, end quote. So it can seem, at least superficially, that my view that there could be no return to normal and Michel Huelbeck's view are opposites. And the question naturally arises of who was correct. Well, if we look at say, the expectations that observers like myself and others might have had one year ago and what has actually transpired, certain things stand out. For one thing, just politically speaking, we should note the remarkable lack of any policy or institutional changes over the past year, even as people have dealt with the pandemic, the so-called lockdowns, the transition to a new presidential administration, the rollout of the vaccines, which have controlled the harm done by the pandemic in certain countries. Nonetheless, despite all of those apparent dramatic developments, there's been remarkably little political or institutional change. There was, from the U.S. point of view, there was the pullout from Afghanistan, which is maybe the most dramatic new development. But even in the realm of American foreign policy, other things have remained strikingly consistent, such as there's been no move to re-engage in or renegotiate the deal with Iran, and on the domestic front, it's remarkable how many things have stayed the same, despite the debates and discussions that came up during the presidential campaign. Perhaps most significantly, there has been no change in the healthcare system. The access to healthcare in the United States is still based on private insurance, which is gained through employment. Not surprisingly, during the pandemic, when there was economic upheaval, And many businesses closed their doors about 2.7 million people lost their insurance coverage and some of those were able to switch to other sources such as medicaid but most of them reportedly are still uninsured a year or more later most of those say that they cannot afford to get health insurance again and as a result they are avoiding going to the doctor or to hospitals there's been no move towards a public option which was promoted and advocated during the presidential campaign, and there's been no change in the pricing of drugs. And as for the conditions of work itself, there is still no universal paid sick leave in the United States. According to Pew Research, about 33.6 million workers, or about 24% of the workforce, do not have any paid sick leave and the conditions in the workplace largely remain the same, except for the transition of some mainly white-collar workers to working from home. There's been no change to the minimum wage, which now has remained unmoved for decades. There has been no cancellation of student or medical debts, no reduction in the cost of public higher education. There is still no national policy regarding affordable housing. There's been no change in the tax structure such as increases in upper tier income or corporate taxes, no change in the campaign funding system or the involvement of money in elections, no change in terms of voting rights or protection of access to the ballot, no change in the policing system or in drug policy, no change in immigration law or policy, with the exceptions of stopping the family separation practice and ending the so-called Muslim bans of migration from majority Muslim countries, there's been no change to federal or state use of private for-profit prisons, and no pause or slowdown in oil drilling or fracking. So all of these issues I bring up, of course, different people will have different opinions and positions on them, but it's important to note that all of them came up as controversies and seemed, as of one year ago, to be ripe for some sort of shift in direction of policy, But across the board in all those topics I just listed off, there has been no significant shift and one can quibble over who is to blame for that state of affairs, you know, whether you point at the executive or certain parties in the legislature. But nonetheless, the overall impression that one gets is of paralysis, of a seeming inability to even rethink let alone redirect institutions and policies and more specifically one can see i think a pervasive mentality much like i talked about at the end of last year a sort of mental resistance to rethinking a resistance to creating any new institutions or services to serve citizens directly even when it relates directly to the pandemic to this society wide and global crisis. And I think, you know, again, one could argue about the nature or meaning of this apparent inability to change direction. But it's hard at this point to deny that it's there and that it's at work, especially in the governing elites, whether of government or business or media. And this intransigence in particular came out, was vividly illustrated just a few weeks ago in a sort of notorious exchange between a journalist and the white house press secretary jen saki when a journalist asked why don't we give out free covid 19 tests to the public something that to many people just seems like an obvious simple move to make when tracking the virus is so important. And Saki, of course, infamously replied, what, are we going to send a free test to every American? As if this was some kind of crazy idea. And I think that even for people who maybe don't share all of my own opinions, it at that point became undeniable. It was so vivid, this sort of disconnect between the public desire for aggressive and broad action to control the harm of this crisis and the sort of elite, you could say, aloof, almost indifference or disbelief that anything drastic or large scale could or should be done. And it's remarkable how through this pandemic, I would say, there's been plenty of debate and controversy, a lot of it quite acrimonious, and yet it rarely ever addresses or proposes Things that large institutions like the state or nonprofits or businesses could do to mobilize resources and deal with the disaster. And instead, it's focused and even obsessed over private individual actions. There have been endless fights about do you wear a mask or not wear a mask? Should you be forced or not forced to wear a mask? Did you take the vaccine or not? Should you be forced to take the vaccine or not? Should you be mandated to stay home, etc., etc.? And all of these deal in some way with what individual citizens do or don't do and what individual citizens are or are not compelled to do. And they never or very rarely make any reference to what institutions are doing and whether there should be institutional change or reorientation. And this is true, I would say, even of the more positive aspects of the public discourse about the pandemic, the sort of effusive talk about heroes, celebrating the essential workers, but without discussing what those people need in order to perform their functions. Are they getting the kind of institutional support that they need? And how are they being treated in the institutional scheme of things? And one just obvious example that I believe I've mentioned previously that comes to mind is the fact that so many of the so-called essential workers working in food service or healthcare were worried about not only contracting the virus because that could be dangerous to themselves, but that they could then bring it home and pass it on to other people in their families, in their communities. And personally, last spring, I simply asked a person who was at the checkout, checking out groceries at the local grocery store and asked him, what is it like working here now that these pandemic restrictions are happening? And his response was that it was not a huge change for him. He could handle it, it was the same job, but he was worried about getting the virus and then bringing it to his father at home. And this was a very common concern at the time and has continued to be, and yet very obvious ideas that come to mind, were never really discussed, much less brought through to any kind of fruition. So at the same time that there were these so-called essential workers doing this work, worried about transmitting the virus, there were hotels sitting empty that were basically shut down with unused lodging. And it seemed sort of natural to just match this need with the supply and give essential workers housing if they wanted it in hotels, to keep these hotels afloat and to help contain the danger of the spread of the virus. And yet, as far as I'm aware, this was never done anywhere at all, let alone was it done on a large or national scale. And I bring this up again just as one example of how it seems as if possibilities for large-scale response have been left to sort of wither on the vine. More fundamentally, you could say there's been repeated concern or alarm about the danger of hospitals being entirely overwhelmed by waves of COVID patients, which is, of course, a very valid concern. But even as this is repeatedly brought up, there never seems to be any questioning of why it is that there are so few hospital beds ready to serve patients in a pandemic, even after decades where repeatedly we've been warned there's going to be a pandemic, there's going to be a pandemic. And this one that's currently happening is hardly the worst or most devastating that there's been. It's far less deadly than other previous pandemics like the Spanish flu, for instance. And the fact is, which is rarely ever pointed out as far as I can see, there are much fewer hospital beds in the country, just in gross numbers, today than there were in the 1970s if one looks up the statistics, the number of hospital beds that can serve patients in the U.S. has declined from about 1.5 million in the mid-1970s down to only about 920,000 in 2019, even as the U.S. population has grown dramatically by at least 50%. So the Capacity for our healthcare system to treat people, much less to treat large numbers of people in a crisis, has been drastically slashed from where it used to be. Why, after a year and a half, has there been no public discussion of this? Why has there been no demand to restore hospital capacity, to expand healthcare, to hire more nurses and healthcare professionals so that they don't become overwhelmed at difficult moments? And it's remarkable that instead of talking about how equipped society is to deal with a crisis like a pandemic disease, instead there's been an increasing focus on blaming individuals for being sick. And understandably, there is a lot of emotion that has been stirred up about questions like mask mandates or vaccination mandates. Because I think it is at this point the only semblance that people have of being able to contribute in some way to a wider social effort to deal with the crisis. And it gives people some sense of solidarity and of being able to act out their altruism. And of course, people who oppose those same mandates are often accused then of selfishness. But ironically, neither side seems to put forward any call for greater collective action. There's been, I would say, a loss of any sense of potential for collective action. And a lot of the acrimony and heightened emotions, I think, are from that frustration of not knowing what else to do in order to help deal with this society-wide disaster. And this is something I've pointed out over and over again, that when crises come, such as in the breakdown of the Western Roman Empire people tend to want to band together and create order rather than sink into fear and disorder and others have mentioned sort of previous moments of fear and alarm like when the original war of the worlds radio broadcast went out and some people took it seriously and believed that actually aliens were attacking and invading america you we can laugh at them for their credulity of course but it's important to notice what did those people do. They didn't go ride out into the wilderness, society did not break down into panic. Rather, people showed up at military recruiting stations, ready to volunteer to fight the aliens, which again, might be amusing, but it is typical of this pattern that I keep referring to, that when people see a danger with a broad threat, They want to band together. They want to rally together and feel that they're doing their part. And I think that we see that kind of need going unfulfilled. There's been little or no encouragement or coordination of any collective action or sharing of burdens like one tends to see in wartime or in the aftermath of other disasters like storms and hurricanes. And instead, the main sort of mode of participating And responding to the pandemic, for most people, has been a series of so-called lockdowns, which have have been instituted and then sometimes rolled back or adjusted repeatedly back and forth over the last year and a half. And for one thing, we should note that this lockdown is actually a misnomer. It's not really a complete uh, across-the-board stay-at-home order like one might see in other situations. Rather, it's been negotiated into something complicated that applies differently to people of different social roles and different classes. We're in a very class-stratified society. And as per usual, people's experience of these so-called lockdowns is mediated to a great degree by class. And what's actually happened is that white-collar people, People who are mostly more educated, who work primarily with their minds rather than with their hands, have been able to stay home and sort of shelter in place. While blue-collar people and service workers who do work in person with their bodies and hands have been forced to continue to go to work in the workplace and continue to do jobs like food service, food preparation, transport, in some cases, manufacturing, as well as healthcare work, and have had to continue to perform these services for the convenience of the middle class and white collar people who get to stay home. So the system has sort of been geared for their safety and convenience. And this scheme, of treating different people's work differently has been justified by calling these lower-paid, mostly blue-collar workers, quote, essential workers. And this is a very loaded phrase. Uh, One, it can be taken to imply that these services like food preparation, food delivery, as well as nursing, trucking, and so forth, are absolutely necessary for the functioning of society. And this could then be reasonably taken to further imply that these essential workers should expect better treatment or pay or rewards for the work that they're doing since it is essential in a time of crisis. But we should notice, of course, that until recent months, up until one might say about July or August this year, that has not happened. Workers have been treated as essential only in the sense that they're not allowed to stop working or that they risk losing their jobs or their livelihoods if they don't continue to show up to work. But they have not been treated as essential in the sense that anything should change for them or should improve in terms of the terms or conditions of their work. So in sum, at least as of this past summer, it certainly seems as if Michelle Huelbeck is right and I was wrong. That, in fact, although there is this disruption, things are simply going to continue on as they were before, with no significant change in style of life or distribution of power or wealth, etc. But, some of you might already be saying, not so fast. It does seem as if something, at least, is happening in recent months, And that something is a sort of amorphous trend that has picked up steam over the later months of 2021, where enormous record numbers of people are leaving their jobs or changing jobs, giving rise to a so-called labor shortage. And it is true that over the past year, over 40 million Americans have quit or resigned from their jobs, which constitutes well over one quarter of the entire workforce. Now, as some will point out, this doesn't mean that they're all withdrawing from the workforce. Many of those same people have also been rehired as various businesses and institutions have picked up their activities again over the course of the year. So it is, in large part, a reshuffle with people moving around, you could say, on the chessboard of employment. It is not just a mass de facto strike. But nonetheless, employers do complain about a lack of workers, a difficulty in staffing up their operations, and a resulting need to raise wages and compensations in order to get the workers that they want. And this resignation wave is, in fact, the reason for this labor shortage. It is not a result of growth or expansion in the economy. There has been reopening, but nonetheless, there still are fewer jobs in the American economy now than there were two years ago in 2019. The economy has still contracted compared to where it was. The problem is that the number of people who are willing to work in those same jobs has shrunken even more dramatically, leaving a significant shortfall. So what are the reasons? What are the reasons for this significant diminution of the number of people willing to go to work? Well, it's hard to pin down exactly. Some press organs are more interested than others in understanding what's going on, and it seems that there are multivarious and complicated reasons for it. Some of them more pandemic-related, and some less so, some only incidentally connected to the pandemic. So some of those that clearly are related to coronavirus include many workers don't want to go anymore into unsafe environments, where they're worried about getting the virus or passing it on to their friends, family, and neighbors, which has been a continuing unaddressed concern all through the pandemic. Another is that many workers, many especially many of these public-facing service workers, are tired of having to enforce new rules and regulations, things like mask or vaccination requirements, and being given this additional duty of enforcing rules upon an often hostile public. Many others are simply exhausted from a year or more of constant overwork, long shifts, and new burdens, and say that they are, you could say, burned out. Others have withdrawn from work and have not gone back because they need to take care of children at home. And that's especially true in places where schools have been closed and there is no other daytime child care available. Also, many older workers in their 50s, 60s, or 70s have taken this moment to retire And some of them may have started working from home or online or were laid off during the pandemic, and they're not going to try to get back into the workforce again, which is very hard for an older person. So there's been a wave of retirements. And also another factor that we should acknowledge that I haven't seen mentioned specifically is that some workers have died. You know, there have been over 800,000 deaths related to coronavirus in the U.S., And those have been mostly older people, but some were younger, right in the middle of their working lives. And some were older, but were still working in the workplace. And so there has been an actual numerical loss of working population. So all of these are results that you could see flowing from the pandemic itself. But there are other factors at work too, where the pandemic might have been a precipitating factor, but it was not the root cause. As I said, white collar workers in large part have shifted to working from home. And many of them have found that they prefer to stay home, that they don't want to be giving hours or years of their lives into jobs in the office where they're controlled and surveilled and long commutes. And they've found that they don't want or are not willing to go back into the office. And if their employers require that, they simply quit many other workers especially lower paid blue collar and service workers have quit with the hope of getting better higher paying jobs so shifting somehow up the employment ladder and of those, it seems that some do succeed, at least in getting higher pay, but others not so. Many others have ended up not being able to make that jump. Either they don't have the supposedly necessary skills or education, or if they do, they're still unable to get those higher paid jobs because they're told they're overqualified. And others have cited sort of a psychological disconnect, a lack of any feeling of loyalty, a lack of being valued by their employer, and the sense that they're not getting any of the respect or appreciation that they think is due to them. And these developments should not be surprising considering that the trend over the last several decades on the part of employers and institutions has been towards so-called flexibility, again in quotation marks. The idea that workers should be able to be moved around, have their hours changed, their locations changed, basically at the whim of the employer, and that there's no duty on the part of employers to make pay or employment regular and dependable. And it's important to notice that these forces as i said were already at work before the pandemic began and they may have come to bear in a more vivid way since the pandemic happened but it's only a precipitating event not the ultimate cause and in my partial defense i think that this is partly what i meant earlier when i said that normal is an illusion society was already in crisis in terms of people's satisfaction with their work their satisfaction with their life directions living conditions all of that was already happening before the pandemic began and there were already mounting crises of poverty impoverishment of mounting debt of worsening living and working conditions and also of social atomization and a sense of pessimism and cynicism about society and ironically these Patterns, especially this last one of atomization, are illustrated famously in Michel Huelbeck's novels, such as his most famous novel, which is translated into English as, quote, atomized. And Michel Huelbeck, as I said, is French, but nonetheless, you can see similar or even more vivid patterns at work in America, where life expectancy, if one just uses this one overall measure of life expectancy, That peaked in the United States in 2013, and it began declining in 2014 and declined, although very slightly, it declined steadily year by year from 2014 through 2018. It saw a small increase again in 2019, but still was lower than where it had been in its previous peak six years earlier. So despite all of the great advances in healthcare that have happened, technologically speaking. Nonetheless, US life expectancy was on the way down for most of the decade before 2020. And this, I hope, drives home what I was trying to say that there is no actual stable or progressive normalcy to which one could return in the first place. And this fact, I think, is seen playing out now in the so-called labor shortage or great quit or great resignation, that the systems of the rhythms of life and work that one already knew before the onset of the pandemic were already unworkable and unsustainable. So the supposedly normal functioning of society cannot simply resume. And as a result, this has forced a haphazard, and piecemeal renegotiation of the terms of work and power. And this renegotiation should make some more sense and be easier to wrap our arms around if we see it in light of previous post-crisis social reckonings. So very often during severe civilizational crises, the lowest level workers in society are often compelled to continue to work and keep society functioning rather than fall into panic or walk out. And this is often done partly through promises, whether explicit or implicit, promises of improved conditions, of new rights and privileges that will be extended to the lower strata of society after the crisis has passed. So hence, civilizational crises like wars, pandemics, and famines are often followed then by class conflict and dramatic renegotiation of social conditions and of the covenant of the different classes and sectors of society. And we can go back to the most dramatic example of this, at least in Western history, which is the aftermath of the Black Death in the 1300s. So The Black Death, as many of you probably know, killed over a third of the population of Europe. It particularly decimated the peasant and craftsman classes, the commoner classes of society. But those who survived into later years after 1350 now found that their labor was very valuable and that they were in a position to negotiate for better compensation and better legal and social treatment in society at large so there was a struggle firstly over wages and rents in which some states intervened such as by putting legal caps on the hourly wages that workers could be paid and this led in effect to a sort of black market of labor with many workers still using their leverage to get better compensation And as these struggles escalated between workers and employers, between landlords and tenants, and then also between the state and the civilian population, this struggle sometimes spilled over into open rebellion. It led to the Jacquerie, the most bloody and cataclysmic rebellion in France before the French Revolution, which broke out in the area around Paris in the 1350s. And later, in a more indirect way, also to the Peasant Revolt in England in 1381, where peasants all around the home counties of England around the capital made a set of radical demands for legal equality, for freedom and mobility, which also was brutally suppressed. But nonetheless, a lot of those ideas and demands of the revolt were eventually enacted anyway over the years. So one could take the Black Death as sort of the most extreme illustration of this pattern, but similar dynamics are at work again in more recent times, such as in the aftermath of World War I and the Spanish flu. So in this unprecedented mass mobilization of the First World War, and the debilitating effects of the flu, new populations had to be rapidly mobilized into work in order to power the industries of the war effort and run civil society. And in several countries, that was particularly taken up by women. And this is a large part of why women first attained the right to vote in much of the Western world, either during or directly after World War I. And as an illustration, in the middle of the war in 1917, this long-standing question of women's suffrage, women's right to vote, which had been really violently fought over and had been suppressed and marginalized by the governing elite, this came to the fore again. And the UK munitions minister, the minister in charge of making sure that the industries continued to supply weapons to the war front, he openly took a position in support of women's right to vote and political equality. And he said, quote, where is the man who would now deny to women the civil rights which she has earned by her hard work? So you can see here the munitions minister, he sort of mixes up singular and plural in this one sentence, but nonetheless, he spells out quite clearly that there was a kind of exchange going on, that if women stepped in to this massive and critical vacuum of wartime labor, they would get political rights in return. And similar effects happened also to a great degree for the working class. In the United Kingdom, the war effort largely legitimized the Labour Party in the eyes of the elite as a legitimate representative of the interests of workers and as a legitimate uh, party that should have a chance at government, which it eventually got then in 1924 with the first labor government. In the United States, there was not as clear a vehicle for sort of politically enfranchising the working class like the Labor Party in Britain. And a lot of those same sort of demands for greater worker power were instead channeled into radical anarchist and socialist unions like the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, which I mentioned in my History of Tulsa. And this sort of growing radical workers' movement was largely suppressed in the Red Scare in the 1920s. And more or less, you can see the middle class uh, was bitterly opposed and terrified in particular of the danger of revolution and of Bolshevism, a sort of echo of the Russian Revolution coming to America. But nonetheless, the growth and the fear around these radical unions helped then to lay the groundwork for the New Deal in the 1930s, where these same sort of middle-class moderates saw the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal as a more moderate and acceptable alternative to the threat of Bolshevik revolution, which was a very real fear, especially in the early 30s now the great depression of the 30s was of course also a civilizational crisis an international crisis in its own right and it led into of course the rise of fascism and the massive mobilization of world war ii and if we look again at america during the second world war there are parallels then that i think are especially vivid and revealing as compared to our current situation So during the Second World War, there was massive new union growth, and unions were largely accepted into the institutional structure of the war effort. And there was a kind of general agreement among employers and workers during the period of the war, where it was allowed that unions could continue to recruit and add to their membership and that they could create closed shops meaning that at certain factories and plants they could require that any new workers be members of the union and in this way this prevented employers from simply hiring and firing workers in order to cleanse out unions and this this policy was called union maintenance But in return, the unions agreed to make no demands for higher pay or new benefits, to basically accept the the status quo compensation, and they agreed to not go on strike or make any threats of strikes for the duration of the war. And so in effect, all the sort of hopes or aspirations that workers might have for better treatment, better pay, were all put off for the duration of the war. After those same workers, of course, had largely survived years of of poverty and precarity through the Depression, all of this was shelved and delayed. And new consumption, such as cars or consumer goods, like shoes or new houses, all of this was put on hold. And even food, of course, was rationed through the war. And with all of these sort of sacrifices and postponed hopes and aspirations, the sort of improved standard of living that many workers hoped they could attain was put off until after the war was won. And so not surprisingly, once the war did end, it touched off a massive new reckoning between capital and labor. And a lot of the developments of the late 40s in the aftermath of the war will sound very familiar. There was massive retirement of many workers who now wanted to have pensions or social security. Many others withdrew from the workforce, especially women who had gone into the factories and run the American industries during the war. A lot of them then resigned and wanted to go home or for whatever reason chose to go home and start families. And so in effect, the actual workforce was constricted And those who continued to work had greatly increased bargaining power. And on top of that, those who continued to work in the late 40s had either accepted the regime of the war effort and accepted the limitations on their pay and other compensation, or they were actual veterans who had served on the war front and now had come home. And in large part, they wanted raises, better conditions, benefits like pensions, health insurance. And there was a tremendous rolling strike wave all through the big industries in America in the late 40s, which culminated, as I described a bit in my lecture on the Powell Memo, This culminated in the so-called Treaty of Detroit of 1950, the massive, multifaceted agreement between the UAW and General Motors, which basically set the pace for all American industries across the board. The idea that workers should have steady, dependable work, seniority protections, decent pay pension provided by the company, and so forth. And so basically by the early 50s, you can see the formation of a sort of post-war settlement, at least a partial consensus, basically centering on this notion that Americans who work full-time, 40 hours a week, and obey the law should be able to attain a basically a middle-class lifestyle. They should get a reasonable share of the profits of industry. They should get job security and sufficient pay to be able to economically support a small family and to buy a home. And home ownership, of course, continues to be this sort of talisman of the American middle-class lifestyle. The workers also should receive basic necessities like coverage of medical care. Also, there. are There were certain policies baked in to this post-war settlement, the understanding that government policy would aim towards full employment, meaning little or no unemployment, anyone who went to look for a job should be able to get one, and an employment ladder, the idea that if you work for a certain time at a low-level job, there should at least be the possibility of advancing upward, and along with those policies, also public services paid for through progressive taxation often very high at the upper tiers. And of course, as I said in my lecture about the Powell Memo, again, there were certain important social questions like African-American civil rights, social equality for women, LGBT rights, that were left unresolved and then came to a head later in different ways in the 60s and 70s. But this sort of consensus about the conditions and terms of work more or less held in the U.S. for about 25 years, from the end of the war in the 40s through the 1960s. And it started to break down, starting in the early 70s. And the 70s are seen, at least in retrospect, as a time of disillusionment, a time of new fractures produced by social and cultural change, by the weakening of unions, by crises like the Vietnam War and the oil shocks, and... Arguably, many historians would agree that we are still living today, basically in the aftermath of that breakdown of the 1970s. And we're in a sort of strange twilight zone, you could say, where certain core assumptions are still taken for granted, as if the conditions of the post-war period of the 50s and 60s still held. It's still often just assumed that there is something like full employment, that those who want to work can, that there's an employment ladder, that if you start off at a low-level position, say at minimum wage, you will quickly advance to higher positions, that if you work, you'll be able to afford a home. And a lot of these things continue to be taken for granted even though they're actually long gone in practice. And so one gets very strange contradictions. For instance, health insurance still being tied to one's employment status and employer, even at the same time that the steady, the expectation of steady employment that might have held in the 1950s or 60s is no longer there. And in fact, working today requires mobility. And I think that this tension really comes into play and comes to the fore again when one looks at this strange category, this strange concept of essential workers. So... The whole idea that certain workers like, say, food delivery people or truck drivers are essential, it flies in the face of the idea that prevails in the business world and in the policy and economics world to a great degree. The idea that workers are simply disposable and that steady nine to five employment is obsolete. And you can see during the time of the pandemic, a lot of these workers including in healthcare and in other fields, often expressed frustration at being called heroes at the same time that there was no material change in their conditions of work and that they still were viewed and treated in the workplace as basically disposable cogs. And it is remarkable that as the pandemic has abated with the arrival of the vaccines, there's been a remarkably rapid return to the same people being spoken of as expendable or even worthless. If, for example, a waiter quits, goes home, and doesn't go back to the job, you'll hear complaints, well, people today just don't want to work, right? The implication being they're somehow lazy or coddled, when those might be the exact same individuals who just a few months earlier you were lauding as heroes. And the sort of intransigence that I referred to when it came to policymakers, this refusal to imagine an actual significant institutional change, this applies, I think, to a lot of employers, a sort of disbelief that they might actually have to pay people more or give them better compensation. And this, again, goes against the longstanding strategy of industry and of many Nonprofit profit and governmental institutions over the past 50 years, which has been to focus on cutting labor costs. So there is this tension and contradiction, and I would argue that a lot of employers have exploited this, and they've exploited more specifically the sense of duty on the part of some of these so-called essential workers. They play on this common feeling of solidarity, of civic duty. So this moralistic call upon workers to do their essential work then can quickly shift into a totally different moral language that you have to work not because your work is important but because otherwise you're lazy you've lost your worth so there's sort of contending i think forces of of guilt while all the while of course employers add on new duties to those who are working you know long very grueling hours for healthcare workers and as i said these new enforcement duties for service workers, that they have to sort of be bouncers and guards at the same time that they're stocking grocery store aisles. And as I mentioned, this has been a major complaint of many people who quit and have not returned, the complaint of being forced to fight with customers and act as kind of the front line for businesses as they change their policies. So in some, this concept, this sort of weird neologism of essential workers Its meaning seems to be very broad and ambiguous and flexible and it's really at root, I would say, a euphemism for low-paid workers who must be compelled to keep working in order for higher-paid or white-collar workers to stay home and be safe. So my hope is that in light of these different contexts and backgrounds, it should not be surprising that a dramatic labor reshuffle is happening. Something has got to give everyone is not gonna keep playing along with these different and conflicting expectations. And it's remarkable, I think, how many elites and how many supposed experts appear to be in denial about the scale and impact of this change and of the, the necessity of change. For example, reportedly in July, the, one of the governors of the Federal Reserve named Lyle Brainerd, said that labor shortages should simply fade by autumn. As schools reopen and fears of the virus abate, as well as with the end of federal unemployment benefits. So it seems the mentality, the assumptions here from people like Lael Brainerd as of this summer, was that the virus and the availability of higher unemployment compensation were the only actual reasons for this drop in labor participation. And once those things went away, things would snap back to normal. And as obviously this is missing, (laughs) the effects both of the conditions that were already at work before 2020 and the, in some ways, catalyzing impact of the pandemic experience. And a further effect, I think, a sign, you could say, a facet of this sort of denial of the problem and this sort of mental intransigence and refusal to think differently about social relationships can be seen in what employers have done to try to deal with the so-called labor shortage, which has sometimes included uh, higher pay and sometimes other compensation like new signing bonuses where they simply pay out a lump sum to the worker as a reward for taking up a job. And this is very strange, I would say, because it indicates that these employers are not broke. They're not without money to pay these workers more. They just resist more significant changes. If they are strapped for cash and really desperately need workers, the question comes up then, well, why don't they simply offer a share of the profits? If these workers are essential, if they're so necessary, Why not say, if you join in and help keep this business going, you will get some piece, some share of profit or share of ownership in the money that the business makes. And this is commonly practiced in many places around the world. It can be called sweat equity, right? Rather than paying in cash to get a share of ownership, you do labor and get a share of ownership. And there are some businesses, of course, that are entirely owned by the employees, The biggest one in the U.S. is the Publix grocery store chain, which is the major chain of supermarkets in Florida and much of the Southeast. It's entirely employee owned. And yet this sort of strategy seems to rarely ever be mentioned, again, let alone enacted. There are probably many reasons why. I can't tell you for sure. But I would venture to suppose that part of why it doesn't come up is because of fear of losing the hierarchy and the inequality, the sense of superiority over workers. And one can hear abundant stories and descriptions of the sort of petty tyrannies that many bosses and employers exercise over workers for no apparent practical reason other than sort of the satisfaction of feeling superior to someone else. And in this way, you can see it again relating to previous crises and the the resistance on the part of elites in the 14th century to the idea of, ex- of abolishing serfdom or allowing legal equality between nobles and peasants and so forth. Okay, so I mentioned earlier how the overriding strategy of both public and private institutions since the 70s has been to bring down labor costs. Obviously, for corporations and businesses, this offers a sort of quick, easy way to boost short-term profit, which is very appealing to executives who want to be able to brag that they increased quarterly profits. And this sort of strategy has been implemented in different ways with different methods through the years. And it really began in the early 70s with their first waves of mass layoffs, simply cutting your payroll by laying off as many people as you can, trying to shrink down to a bare bones workforce, which is more or less the same thing that many businesses did during the pandemic. And it was followed then in the later 70s by the pattern of offshoring, moving operations out of the country, to where labor costs were lower. It also of course involved discouraging or suppressing unions. An important strategy in that regard has been creating tiers of workers, basically taking the compensation regime that applies to current workers and then cutting it back drastically for any new workers that come on so that you have a sort of divide and conquer effect. The union can't effectively represent the older and newer workers together. And in recent years, it's also turned a lot to outsourcing, which is sort of like offshoring, but increasingly it's offshoring within the country, transferring operations to contractors and subcontractors that pay lower wages and have less job security and workers who are easily terminated. So all of these new business practices have then existed alongside rising basic costs, rising prices of housing, rent, health care, education costs, etc., which, of course, naturally lead to overall impoverishment. And by the 2010, surveys found that most Americans either were in net debt or had very little assets and wouldn't be able to cover a $400 emergency if it came up without borrowing. So this increasing squeezing of what was once the middle class and the blue collar working class is covered over or hidden by credit and by rising debts. And for much of the population, debts practically swamp assets, including student debt, growing medical debt, as well as the more traditional forms of home mortgage debt, auto loan debt, and simply consumer credit card debt. So as of today, as we come through the pandemic, surveys show that over 50% of Americans now have some sort of medical debt. And that was reported in Forbes magazine, you know, hardly a lefty rag. And in previous decades, this kind of mounting debt would tend to lead to bankruptcy. But laws have been changed over the past 30 years to make bankruptcy much harder. And at this point, many people who are deeply in debt actually cannot afford to pay the legal costs of going through the bankruptcy process. And this leads in effect to the rise of a permanent debtor class. And today there is about $15 trillion of total personal and household debt in America. The average American has about $59,000 of debt. This is no longer a situation where sort of younger people who are starting out, getting an education, buying a home, have debt that they then pay off. Rather, today, the majority of debt is held by people over 50. So this has become a lifelong situation of continuing debt. So in sum, the sort of economic order that people might have been accustomed to assuming in the 50s and 60s is really gone. And we're seeing instead patterns of mass impoverishment, which are covered over with credit and debt. And the last wave of cutting of labor costs that follows from the others is what has now been called casualization. The idea that As I said, workers should be treated as kind of casual pawns to be picked up and discarded at will. And permanent employees are often replaced with contractors, sometimes the exact same people or simply fired and then taken back on with contracts, with lower pay, no benefits, no job security. In Great Britain, this became a big political issue, so-called zero-hour contracts, which many young people were compelled to sign where they agreed to be constantly available to go to work say at a retail outlet but they didn't know if they would actually get any hours at all week by week they simply had to wait for the call and some proposed uh, banning this practice but as far as I'm aware it's still legal and this is an example of the new pattern of requiring total commitment on the part of the worker but none on the part of the firm. And significantly, this sort of practice, which has been applied to people like like retail clerks, has also trickled up into white-collar professions like academia, where now permanent professorships are eliminated and instead so-called adjuncts are hired at will semester to semester. And the overall result, you can see, is tremendous profits, right? Businesses in the U.S. today are making huge profits. The stock market is very strong, and this is based on large part on a base of bare-bones, squeezed labor forces. Now, one of the effects of this is that it's increasingly difficult to form unions. To do the sort of thing that was common in the 30s and 40s of organizing workers in these industries. When you have workers constantly moving around, being hired and fired, having their hours shuffled around, having different crews of, of unknown people showing up and leaving at different times, it's very hard for workers to become acquainted with one another, much less to then organize. And even when unions do form in some businesses, they can often then be cut off at the knees by the employers simply shutting down the particular branch where the union forms. So with increasingly large retail and food service chains employing millions of people, the employers have this power to simply uh, eliminate businesses with unions. For example, Dollar General now is very widespread all over the country. There are more Dollar Generals than McDonald's and they are ununionized, but Last year, before the pandemic began, in the winter of 2020, a group of six workers at a Dollar General store in Missouri were able to form a union. The Dollar General then sued in court to try to avoid legally recognizing or dealing with this union. They lost the suit in court, so they were compelled to legally recognize the union. And in response, Dollar General simply shut the store down. And this is something that massive chains are able to do. And As some people have pointed out, this is very likely to continue happening, such as when some Starbucks workers are able to organize and form unions at Starbucks locations in Buffalo. It should not be surprising if Starbucks simply shuts those locations down in order to prevent the virus of unionization from spreading. So in effect, in some, the past 50 years have been a kind of extended experiment, a sort of social experiment in boosting profits by squeezing workers and seeing how far they can be pushed in terms of low pay, unreliable hours. And so it should not be surprising that as a result, in the last few years, some degree of pushback has begun. And perhaps one might suppose conditions have reached a sort of rock bottom where people will not go any further. They won't, they won't work under this regime any longer and i say intentionally over the last few years because new actions in labor new formations of unions new strikes have been very much in the headlines and have been much discussed but arguably this pattern began before the pandemic started and in this way i would i would venture to guess that the current situation might actually be very similar to what happened during and after World War I, where there was, for many years, there was a perception among scholars, observers, commentators in Britain that the sort of middle-class Victorian liberal order of the 19th century was destroyed by the disruption of World War I. But the historian George Dangerfield, in a very powerful, impactful book called The Strange Death of Liberal England, He actually argued that that was not true, that in fact the liberal Victorian order was already falling apart from its own internal contradictions and conflicts in the early 1910s from the radical suffrage movement, the radicalized labor movement, which had a great deal of anarchism and Marxism, by the Irish independence movement and the, the crises in government over Irish home rule and the abolition of the House of Lords. And that basically that order was tearing itself apart and many people were, were dissatisfied and radicalized. And that in his view, the war actually compelled people to rally together to a national cause, and preserved and prolonged the Victorian social order for a few more years, where it was on its way to falling apart before the war began. And I would suggest that the same sort of thing is at work now, that it may seem as if the pandemic somehow disrupted the order of things that were in place. Whereas in fact, I would speculate that it helped suppress conflict and keep things more in place for a few years longer. But that being said, it's worth noting some of the different sort of labor actions that have happened and caught people's attention just over this past year. So there have been efforts to unionize important service workers, such as at Amazon warehouses. There was the vote at the warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, that failed but now has to be redone because a court ruled that there was improper manipulation and interference by Amazon, so that is going to be revoted. There are, as I mentioned, the formation of new unions for the first time at Starbucks locations in Buffalo. There have been significant strikes across the food production industry, with workers going on strike at Frito-Lay factories, Kellogg's factories, Nabisco plants in Oregon and Colorado, and at John Donair Desserts, which is in LA and supplies cakes and other baked goods to Walmart, Coldstone Creamery, Baskin Robbins, and other outlets. There have been strikes, or th- serious threats of strikes, or new unions formed, and in other service industries like education and healthcare. There's been a very long-running, actually record-breaking strike of nurses at the St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts. There's been a long-running strike of graduate student workers at Columbia University. There's been a new union formed among 17,000 academic workers at the University of California system. There's been a threat of a strike, which led to certain demands being met by workers in Kaiser Healthcare on the West Coast. And there was a a serious threat of a strike among nursing home workers throughout New England, where they demanded $20 an hour and pensions, and those demands were met before a strike took place. There have also been strikes of unions in traditional mining and manufacturing industries, such as a strike by the UMWA at the Warrior Met Coal Mine in Alabama and a successful strike of manufacturing workers in John Deere factories in the Midwest. And this last strike at John Deere is especially significant because the rank-and-file workers insisted on getting all or nearly all of their demands met against the wishes of the union leadership. So this is one of many instances that have surfaced where there's a split between the management of unions and the rank-and-file membership, many of whom are much more uh, dissatisfied, militant, and feel that the management of the union is not actually advancing their interests. And so not surprisingly, there have also been really dramatic political revolutions within certain significant unions, which many labor journalists argue are actually more significant and impactful than any of these individual strikes. So for instance, in the Teamsters, the faction that has been centered on the Hoffa family dynasty for the first time lost election to a slate of more militant and reformist candidates. And in the UAW, the United Auto Workers, there has been a constitutional amendment that has tried to democratize that union and called for decisions to be made democratically on the basis of one member, one vote, and that has dramatically undercut the sort of controlling power of the managing faction of the organization. So all in all, it certainly seems that something significant is happening. there There is a pattern at work here in the aftermath of the pandemic, and it must be related to the so-called great quit or great resignation. But there are also several important caveats that we have to keep in mind, even as we see this dramatic pattern. There are five caveats that I'll point out. One is that, as labor reporters have argued, this year has not actually seen more labor actions than many other previous years they are just being more broadly noticed than they were before. So in terms of the number of strikes and the number of striking workers who have walked out, there have actually been fewer this year than there were two years ago in 2019 when there were massive teacher strikes such as throughout West Virginia and Los Angeles County. So this is not a record-setting year in terms of these sorts of labor actions. They're just being more noticed than they were previously. And people of the sort of social profile or lines of work who might previously have been more indifferent or even hostile to labor actions have now become more interested and more sympathetic, maybe because they also feel that their work regime has become unworkable. And part of why that, that sympathy exists, I would say, is because the sort of squeezing and degradation of the conditions of labor That may have first applied to low level service workers has been trickling up. So, longer and longer hours of work expected, the growing expectation of total devotion to the employer, of being on call 24 7, and the drying up of what used to be better compensated, more stable, dependable jobs, like, as I mentioned, professorships or journalism. As well as finally, the inability, the failure, of wages and salaries even if they're much higher in these sort of white-collar lines of work their inability to keep up with the ballooning cost of housing even if one is able to get a better paying white-collar job they're concentrated within what i call a few golden cities basically boston new york washington los angeles san francisco and seattle And since those high-paying jobs are also geographically concentrated, rents and housing costs in those cities are high enough to eat up most of that compensation. Now, a second caveat is that even if there is this increasing middle-class or affluent sympathy for militant labor, it's still unclear how much influence that will have and whether that will change the direction of future events. For example, just a few weeks ago, there was a massive record-breaking outbreak of tornadoes that tore through much of the southeast and midwest and killed six people who were trapped in an Amazon warehouse in Illinois that was hit by a tornado and killed nine people in a candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky that was producing candles for bath and body works and workers in both places at the from the amazon warehouse and the candle factory in mayfield both reported that they were not allowed to leave that even though there were ample forewarnings of tornadoes in that region they were forced to stay in place and continue to work resulting in at least 15 people being killed And I would observe that this seems like a remarkable echo of previous workplace disasters like the Triangle Factory Fire in New York in 1911, where workers were killed because the doors were locked so that they wouldn't be able to walk out with swatches of cloth. But it's remarkable that even as there is, you could say, this sort of awakening of awareness towards labor issues, there has been no corresponding outrage, no upswell of demands for workplace safety in the aftermath of these disasters in Illinois and Kentucky, the way there was among the progressive and reformist middle class in 1911, after the Triangle Fire. A third caveat is that even as there are possible advances of labor organization in action, they will be fought and opposed as much as possible by the employer institutions. As I said, new retail or food outlets that see unions forming will likely just be closed down, and many other so-called union-busting strategies are sure to be deployed. A fourth caveat is that although these this new labor militancy might be striking and interesting, it's still a very diffuse response. There is nowhere near the level of organization or coordination among workers that there was in other crises, especially the aftermath of World War II. So this response, although there are unions involved and some new unions are being formed, in general, it's a haphazard and unfocused response involving individual choices. And it's very hard to predict or interpret the meanings or motivations of this shift, of this great reshuffle. And the media, of course, you know, different media outlets have approached this differently, but by and large, most large outlets have tended to talk much more to pundits like economists rather than to actual workers themselves and tried to figure out directly what people are thinking and doing and why, with exceptions, of course. And more importantly, there is today now no mouthpiece in the form of major labor leaders. People like Walter Ruther, the head of the UAW, who in large part steered the labor effort for a renegotiation in the 40s and 50s. There are no national figures like that who can sort of give voice to labor demands. There is no organized way to channel the responses and manage this situation like there was in the 40s. And finally, as the last caveat, I'll just restate again that there is evidence showing that this crisis started before the pandemic, and the pandemic only complicated it in very unclear ways that may be impossible to pick apart. It's true that this year, 2021, has seen the most resignations in America since the 1940s, since that withdrawal from the labor force after the end of the war, but... The next closest, the second most resignations of any year since the end of World War II was in 2019. So again, the trend was already happening and there were plenty of strikes in 2019 that were bigger in terms of numbers and the crises that I've described in health and living conditions had already started before. People were largely broke, couldn't cover a small emergency, life expectancy was already going down through most of the 2010s, and this was due largely to suicides and overdoses. So once again, it's a misunderstanding, I would argue, to say that the pandemic caused this crisis. It's just as likely, or even more likely, that the pandemic forestalled the crisis Okay, so with all of those weighty issues on our minds, why would I want to talk about such a corny, schlocky movie as It's a Wonderful Life, other than the fact that many people are rewatching it and maybe crying over it again in December? Well, it's exactly 75 years now since that movie came out. And it was made in 1946, right in the middle of that post-war transition that I've been talking about. And I think it gives a window onto that dramatic negotiation of a new post-war settlement. So that's why it's historically significant. It is not significant because it made much of an impact at the time. In fact, it was not successful commercially at all when it was released in 1946. And this was maybe a bit surprising because the director Frank Capra had been the great, most celebrated, most popular, most oscar director of the 1930s. He, like so many people, had taken a break from his industry and worked in the war effort, producing newsreels and propaganda films during the war. And It's a Wonderful Life was the first movie that he made after the end of the war. It was his return to Hollywood movie making, And so it was clearly a massive disappointment to most of all to Capra himself that the movie turned out to be basically a flop. It did not make back its massive bloated production budget. It also was shocking because Jimmy Stewart was one of the most appealing and popular movie stars of the time. And Jimmy Stewart also had actually gone to war. He had been a pilot before he became an actor. He enlisted in the Army Air Force and flew in a number of combat missions in Western Europe, reached the rank of Colonel, before he was discharged and came back to America. So it seemed as if this should be an exciting uh, reunion and should sort of put a, a note of optimism and possibility on the transition from wartime to peace. But in fact, it did not succeed for different reasons. Critics and popular audiences were largely unhappy with it. It was quickly forgotten and shelved. And it rose to fame and prominence only many years later, beginning in the 1970s, when it started to be shown on television. So if that is true, then what does the movie represent? Well, for one thing, it's clearly a peon to the people who stayed home and who kept civil society and the home front and the home economy running while others went overseas to war. And the irony is that many of these people, rather than feeling lucky that they were spared, actually felt overlooked and that they were not part of the massive celebration and the encomiums to these heroes returning from the war. And maybe that included, for one thing, Frank Capra himself, who, as I said, was too old to go to war himself and instead instead made war propaganda films like the series Why We Fight. So the movie, I think, pretty clearly represents Capra's and the other writers' vision of America at a dangerous crossroads with two or more possible futures ahead of it now that the war was finally over. So in 1946, the country was clearly looking forward to a future of much greater wealth and a consumer bonanza now that these industries that had been massively expanded during wartime with public money could now be redirected to producing things like cars and clothes and homes for the consumer market. And after years of deprivation in the Depression and of sacrifice and rationing during the war, this enormous workforce could now expect a sort of influx of tangible consumer wealth. And Capra clearly was concerned about how Americans would react to this sudden change. He hoped that people would embrace the model of ordinary stable, domestic, middle-class life, rather than throwing themselves into hedonism and decadence. So the movie reflects an effort to put forward a vision of a middle-class America and to celebrate this sort of Yankee-Protestant mentality of thrift Devotion to family, particularly the nuclear family, and local civic mindedness, and that it would embrace domesticity as symbolized, particularly by single family homes, and also symbolized by the trappings of Christmas, the sort of encapsulation of the idealized domestic family life. And so, more or less, what we see in formation still evolving, still emerging in this 1946 movie is what we now call the American dream, this sort of conventional middle-class lifestyle that should be attainable to people of different social classes, that everyone should have this avenue to become middle-class. And as usual, as is so often the case, this American dream, this vision, is believed in most fervently by immigrants, like Capra himself who was born and lived his early childhood in Sicily before he migrated with his family to California. So this sort of middle-class vision that Capra is trying to encapsulate in the movie had really been nurtured already through the 1920s and 30s in the interwar period, but it had been accessible only to a few, only to a limited class, basically of professionals and small business people, and it was often resented or rejected by workers, many of whom lived a different lifestyle with extended families, and many of whom were actually radicalized. So Capra, after the war is over and this reckoning is upon the country, Capra clearly hopes that this sort of rising, aspiring working class that now is ready to claim the rewards of peace and wealth He hopes that they will embrace this middle-class vision for themselves as a new norm. And a lot of the movie clearly is about George Bailey, this sort of archetypal ordinary (laughs) American small businessman making this middle-class vision through the the building of single-family homes in so-called Bailey Park, making this available to the rising working class. And the movie, of course... Corresponding to that, it makes no mention of labor struggles, unions, demands for higher pay, or collective action. But rather, in It's a Wonderful Life, the vehicle through which people attain this new middle-class world is credit, right? As exemplified by the Building and Loan, Bailey Brothers Building and Loan, this business that George Bailey sacrifices so much to keep alive because he sees it as altruistic and civically beneficial. So in these ways, even if the tone and some of the sentiments of the movie are sort of populist, this doesn't mean that they are radical or oppositional. In fact, Capra was a conservative. And this is more or less a conservative vision of where many people hoped America would go in this post-war reckoning. So if that's a brief comment then on what I think the movie is about, then there are several things that flow from that that have to be pointed out, misunderstandings, things that can be easily misunderstood about this movie and that we have to recognize. One is the notion that it's just cutesy, sentimental schlock. Well, it is cutesy, it is sentimental, it is schlocky, that's true. But it's also very dark. And this is apparently a large reason why it was not a commercial success at the time. It did not present the sort of optimistic mood that people wanted in the 40s, especially for a supposed Christmas movie. And there is a very strong dark element in the movie. Not only in the sequence where George sees an alternative world that is much more coarse and vulgar than Bedford Falls, but also in the scenes before that where we see George's life story unfolding. And I think the movie really brilliantly shows the kind of entwining web of social expectations that are being slowly woven around George and trapping him in relationships and duties and responsibilities that he never wanted. And his dreams of broader horizons and ambitions of seeing the world, of realizing his creative visions, you see these dreams being slowly crushed over the course of the movie. And Jimmy Stewart is so crucial here because, you know, as much as he's a sort of adorable American everyman, you certainly can't say he's not a good actor. And he vividly captures that mood of mounting bitterness and anger and fear that builds up over the course of his life as he is increasingly sucked in to this really stifling and narrow middle-class life that then culminates in him lashing out at his family and contemplating suicide. So it's remarkable, I think, that the movie, although we might think of it as just a kind of one-sided sentimental encomium to middle-class American Christmas, it actually shows both sides, that while there is comfort and satisfaction to be found in this sort of narrower ordinary conventional life in a small town. There is also a strong sense that it is stifling and stultifying and there are reasons to be to be afraid of it even as one ultimately gives in and accepts it. Now the movie of course has a cute tacked on happy ending as most of Frank Capra's movies do but You know, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about how the movie ends. The uh, Bailey Building and Loan loses $8,000 in cash. They're in danger of being prosecuted criminally, but people show up and give gifts of money to George in order to make up this shortfall. But it's significant that this tacked-on happy ending on Christmas Eve only resolves the immediate monetary issue. So maybe their hide is saved for the moment, But it doesn't entirely eliminate the legal issue. There is still the danger of suspicion or prosecution for embezzlement or theft. And more fundamentally than that, George Bailey's life does not change. It's still just as constricted and as stifling as it was before. All that's happened is that George, ironically, has now trained himself to see things from a different angle he's forced to take a sort of wry, ironic pleasure in the darkness of his life. And this is captured particularly, I think, in the line when he's rushing back home. And he's still in legal jeopardy, but he says, isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. (laughs) And this is one of many darkly ironic lines throughout the movie, which I think probably show the influence of Dorothy Parker. So The script was worked on by many different writers. It was a long, grueling, confused process. But one of the last writers who was brought in to sort of enliven or punch up the script was Dorothy Parker. And some critics have said, oh, you can't see any trace of her influence in the movie. But I disagree. I think that there are many moments that encapsulate the sort of sense of fatalistic irony in the movie, which then is seen also very significantly in the title it's a wonderful life one can take that just sort of naively and unironically as isn't it wonderful he gets to have a house and family in this little town of bedford falls but at the same time so much of the movie is built around showing how disappointing and limited his life has been and how much he's been frustrated And so it can be taken as ironic as well. Oh, isn't it a wonderful life? And in particular, it repeats that word wonderful that also appears then in that line, isn't it wonderful, I'm going to jail. So it underscores, I think, how bleak his life can be at the same time. And I think that this overtone and this carefully balanced tension of two different ways of viewing his life is actually very complex and was probably not, it was, it was too <laughs> emotionally complicated to make it a box office hit at the time. Now a second misunderstanding of the movie that we should be aware of is the notion that it portrays simply a generic Hollywood fantasy vision of America. You could see Bedford Falls as kind of a, a false vision, a simulacrum of an America that never existed, sort of like Main Street USA in Disney World, which is the classic illustration of what Baudrillard called a simulacrum, an exact copy of something that never actually existed in the first place. Now, this is only partly true. It is certainly a generic, sort of gauzy, sentimental view of America with very limited problems, with, as I said, no class conflict. But at the same time, it actually presents a fairly close best effort approximation of a real place in America. Bedford Falls is clearly a thinly veiled recreation of Seneca Falls, New York, an actual mill town in western upstate New York near the upper end of Seneca Lake. And a lot of the geography of the town, the layout of the town common, the trestle bridge that Clarence and George eventually jump off of, this is all clearly mimicking Seneca Falls. The actual town also has a large Italian immigrant population, as is common in many of the industrial towns and small cities in upstate New York. And there are references, specific geographic references through the movie, references to industries in Rochester and Buffalo, the main cities of upstate New York. And there's even a specific reference at one point to the bank inspector going home to Elmira, which strikes particularly close to home for me personally, because that is a large town just down the road from the town where my father grew up in western New York and where my father and aunts grew up and my cousins still live. So there is a remarkable wealth of often subtle detail slipped into the movie that tie it closely to real places and events. And in some points, there are remarkably specific references to historical events that are really unusual in a Hollywood movie. Most significantly, you might notice early on when we're seeing George in childhood, He's working for a druggist named Mr. Gower, and he sees that Gower receives a telegram informing him that Gower's young son in college has died of influenza, and it's dated May 1919. So this is a very unusual specific reference to the Spanish flu pandemic and to the great personal costs of the Spanish flu, which in my lectures on the Spanish flu I noted were very rarely discussed explicitly in American art or literature. And in a lot of ways, the movie is remarkably realistic. You see certain economic forces, such as small businesses being pressured and increasingly swallowed up by big conglomerates who want to eliminate local bases of competition. You see references to the riskiness and even recklessness of liberal home loans, in the post-war era. And some of this comes from the mouth of Mr. Potter, who of course is the villain. But Potter, a number of times, has legitimate points to make. One of them being that Bailey has to decide whether this institution, the building and loan, is a business or a charity. And that if he mixes and matches of those two things, those two aims, He risks giving out way too many loans to people who may not repay them and creating an unstable situation. Need I say more? And I would argue there is also a psychological realism in the bitterness and the resentment on George's part, who is never able to travel abroad and who feels a suppressed resentment towards those like his brother Harry who go to the war front and take part in the great events of the time and often distinguish themselves. So there are these specific realistic elements. And then thirdly, I would also point out it's a misunderstanding to say that the movie is nostalgic. It was definitely not nostalgic when it was made. For one thing, it's not an entirely positive portrait of this middle-class world, as I said. But also, when it puts forward this sort of Christmas-themed vision of the American future, it was forward-looking, not backward-looking. This vision of domestic life was aspirational when the movie was made in 1946. As I said, that middle-class lifestyle had largely been built and the ideology had developed, sort of centering on the symbol of the single-family house in the 1920s and 30s. And it then went public or scaled up in the broader prosperity of the 40s. And that suburban family house is basically a simulacrum of the colonial country house of the 1920s which became sort of the standard status symbol of well-to-do professionals and managers so when the movie was made this was an aspirational vision that was being contrasted with alternate possibilities as embodied by pottersville but it basically disappeared all through the post-war era the very time when that vision and those conventions held sway. And it only reached a new audience and became a sort of American classic in the 70s. And the way that this happened is that the studio that Capra created called Liberty Films that made the movie, it failed. None of Capra's movies from then on were successful. His, In effect, his career was already over and they sold the rights to the movies cheap to another studio that basically just put them on the shelf and did nothing with them. And under copyright law, for a studio to maintain its exclusive copyright on a movie, it has to renew every 28 years. It has to go through a bureaucratic paperwork process and pay a nominal fee in order to extend and maintain its copyright. And because the film was made in 1946, that expiration date then was 1974. And the studio didn't bother to renew the rights. So then all of these television stations, which were desperate for some content to put on the air through Christmas, now suddenly had this sort of free long movie that they could just put out on air and fill up some time. And they found that people loved it and kept requesting for the film to be re-shown every year. And in the 70s, it sort of exploded and became a phenomenon. And it's remarkable that this happened just at the time when this post-war economic order that I was describing was starting to break down. And when this sort of stable, happy, quaint life in a Victorian house in a small town could then be seen as nostalgic, and hence could fit in neatly into the sort of sentimental mood of Christmas. And this is where it became a Christmas movie, and obviously it has been one ever since. And the last misunderstanding that I'll point out is maybe the most argumentative, the most aesthetic contention. And that's just the idea that the movie is sort of trite, shallow, obvious. And again, this is only partly true. There are certain very obvious themes that are very aggressively presented to the audience, like the sort of closing moral of the story, no man who has friends can be a failure. You know, and this is the sort of thing that critics, of course, have to react against, this kind of condescending foregrounding of the message to the audience. But I would say this certainly does not mean that there aren't very subtle themes and layers woven into the movie as well and really there have to be because that's the only way that the movie can hold up to so many viewings over and over again through the years. There have to be these complexities to it and viewing the movie in retrospect from the point of view of today 75 years later I think there are certain subtle themes and symbols that might speak to an audience today. For one thing there is The capturing of, as I said, the fear of conventional life and of being confined to an uninspiring and unmeaningful office lifestyle through the workday, and then, of course, to the life of the nuclear family at home at night, which can also be quite stifling. So there's this fear expressed of being stifled, of dreams withering on the vine, and This theme, I think, is the reason for a lot of the very long opening scenes in the movie, the long setup, which otherwise might be sort of inexplicable. And in particular, there is a conversation between George Bailey and his father at the home dinner table, where Bailey is intending to set out, uh, get an education, explore, travel the world, become an architect. And the father asks whether he wouldn't rather come back to Bedford Falls and take up leadership of the family business, the building alone. And George reacts very negatively with disgust to this idea. And he says, quote, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. Now, I would venture to guess that there are probably many people today who could sympathize with this exact feeling when there are so many people who are either quitting altogether or refusing to go back into the office. And in many cases, it's because they want to live their life. They want to have leisure time, they want to see family and friends, and they're tired of being trapped and stifled in exactly the way that George warns about. And in particular, I think it's significant that he says he doesn't want to be, quote, cooped up in an office. A lot of the original viewers of the movie would know that that term comes from chicken coops, in which chickens or other birds would be caged. And there's this repeating, subtle reference all throughout the movie to the theme of birds and flight, and the the hope, the, the lost hope, the missed hope of taking flight. For instance, very strangely, and without being explicitly discussed, there is an actual bird who reappe- reappears in several scenes through the movie. So, the uncle, who is sort of the clerk of the building and loan, has a pet raven who shows up again and again, sort of on the counter in the business office, so is actually enclosed. <laughs> a-, a bird that should be wild has been domesticated and brought into the life of the office, just like is happening to George Bailey, that he's being pulled in and his spirit is sort of being contained in the office. And then woven throughout it too, when George talks about his ambitions, his his wish to go and see the world, there are repeated references to airplanes and flight. At one point, he says what he thinks are the most beautiful sounds in the world, and one of them is the sound of plane engines. And this is then Uh, you know, sort of bitterly reflected in the fact that his younger brother, Harry, becomes a pilot and goes and serves as a fighter pilot in the war and distinguishes himself and is decorated. So this sort of dream of flight is taken away from him and given to the brother instead. And then finally, even when you think of the most sort of seemingly trite sentimental elements in the movie with Clarence the angel, his aim is to change George Bailey's mind so that he can gain his wings, right? That is the sort of final marker of Clarence's success and recognition as an angel, is to get his wings in basically the same way that a fighter pilot aspires to get his wings. So there's this constant theme running through of this sort of vision of flight that other people are able to have, but that is continually denied to George himself. George instead serves as, as the vehicle, the sort of launching pad, you can say, off of which other people are able to take flight. Okay, and finally, there are ways in which I think the movie appears prophetic, not naive, but prophetic from the point of view of today it foresees in different ways social problems that have come to a head. There is the creation of a simulated broad prosperity based upon cheap credit. There's also the theme of suicide, which was remarkably explicit and dark for a movie of this time. And that too is reflected in recent times in the very high rates, well, the, I shouldn't say very high, but increasing rate of suicide in recent years, especially among middle-aged men. That is now the most common occurrence of suicide in modern America. And I would say that the movie in a lot of ways foresees a mood that would increasingly become prevalent in America from the 70s to today, a mood of disillusionment, rejection of the stifling bourgeois lifestyle of the middle class and in a lot of ways the the themes of the movie can be compared to later feminist critiques by people like Betty Friedan who pointed out how limiting and how stifling middle-class and suburban life could be you can see a lot of those same critiques of conventional American life could apply to men as well and also the movie foresees a lot of what would follow from that mood of disillusionment. So the replacement of middle-class convention with a new sort of consumer hedonism. And I would argue, of course, that part of what is so striking about the movie is that one could say that we today live in Pottersville. That alternative vision of what Bedford Falls could be if the power of money was allowed to run rampant has basically come true. Right? Untrammeled commercialization, constant bombardment with advertising, and the resorting to sort of cheap superficial tricks to fix small town economies that actually make things worse. So as industry has either closed or moved abroad, you see this effort to sort of fill the gap, especially with casinos and gambling as kind of a cosmetic fix. And even the renaming of the town as Pottersville. You know, one could see that as sort of a melodramatic source of of shock in the movie. But even that today doesn't appear so outlandish. Consider, for example, the town you may have heard of called Dish, Texas. Dish, Texas, it's a bit of an odd name that is not what what it was originally called. Rather, the town residents agreed to rename the town as a marketing gimmick in return for the Dish television network, providing them with free cable for some limited period, like a year. So even the naming rights of towns increasingly seem to be up for sale. And if one looks at Pottersville, you know, many observers have have said, you know, Pottersville looks like fun. There's music, there's dancing. It's a lot more uh, appealing than Bedford Falls. And that's fair enough. But they're overlooking what is important that's different about Pottersville. Which is not simply that people drink or gamble or dance it's that in pottersville the the same characters are very surly and cold it's an unwelcoming environment and that's because they don't have the same relationships with one another they've lost the familiarity with each other that seems to exist in bedford falls and so it's an illustration then of the breakdown of social relationships And this is what the sort of, you know, cheeky, self-satisfied kind of defenders of Pottersville often miss. And in this way, I would argue they themselves, these critics who have written columns about I'd rather live in Pottersville than Bedford Falls, they're failing to see the ways in which they themselves are products of Pottersville. And they no longer understand Bedford Falls as a believable real place. Even though, as I said earlier, it's actually not a complete fantasy. And there's a remarkable amount in the movie trying to connect Bedford Falls to real places and events. So in short, one could say, well, in Bedford Falls, everything appears conventional, stifling, stultifying. And that's certainly true and is dramatically illustrated in the movie. But in contrast, in Pottersville, things have been sort of dissolved. Everything is cheapened, coarsened, and commodified and it's prophetic not only in the sense that it captured recent times in that way but also that that world now increasingly is seen as the norm it's not a fantasy alternate reality it's the current reality that we increasingly take for granted so finally in sum you don't have to like the film of course it's up to taste what movies you like but i do think that you have to consider and recognize just how much that two-hour movie encapsulates and the significance of what it shows and dramatizes and what it leaves out and excludes. Okay, so thank you so much for listening to this long commentary. And lastly, I'd like to say happy birthday to my brother, Mike. His birthday is the 30th. And as for the year on this podcast, the audience, of course, continues to grow. This past year, there have been about 76,000 plays on SoundCloud and 173 likes on the various tracks. The most played lectures on SoundCloud have been about Robin Hood, India Part 1, Creating Civilization in South Asia, and the first part of the History of the Roma or Gypsies. And on YouTube... There have been uh, almost the same number of views, about 68,000 views, 24,000 total hours of viewing. There are now over 1,500 subscribers to the YouTube channel. And the posts that have had the most views are The History of the British and Irish Travelers, followed by Judaism and Who Wrote the Bible, New Testament. And I'd like finally to thank my patrons. So at this point, my next goal is to have 200 patrons, which should make it possible then to bring on a producer or assistant, someone I could collaborate with who would help with all kinds of technical processes like getting more rights to music and audio clips and editing videos, which is something I would like to try but is a dramatic next step. So if you can, please sign on. You'll have access to patron-only lectures and you'll help to get to that goal. But as of this night when I'm recording, I currently have 116 patrons. And in order of their overall cumulative contribution to the podcast over its lifetime, those 116 are Carl Biagetti, Ellen Siskind, Ken Muller, Judy Siskind, Michael Biagetti, Dan Hernandez, Christine Pacheco, David C. Lavery, Peter Goldstein, John Sullivan, Ozzy Elowich, Joseph Murray, Gail and Jim Elowich, Rob Balgley, Adam Kath, John, Carrie Feibel, Alex Muller, Amandeep Boyer, Anonymous, Brooke Meachin, Karen Fagan, Kirill Trepesnikov, Jeffrey Schulenberger, Andrew Deldano, Shamant Jila, Christine Gelani, Douglas Horgan, Richard Murray, Si Yuan Sun, Karen Plushutsnig, Jeannie Lyons, Becky Mann, Eric Daffron, Spencer, Monica Kuniyoshi, Paul is East of the Pecos, Slate Mills, Mike Coffee, Warren Green, Oliver, Heather Anderson, Queku Colin Gorey, Michael Sokolovsky, Jonah Horwitz, ZMK5, David Aslanian, Martin Casey, William Finn, Caroline, Chris Hoffman, Andrew Smith, Lars Rotem-Krangnes, Marie-Louise Weihill, Carol Schrifter, Joe, Sean Greening, Suzanne Lee, Steve Hamlet, Gulb, June, Andrea, Rebecca Cressley, Adam Hustler, Chris Ritchie, Angelica Falkenstein, Emily Klosterman, William Cux, Joel Star Avalos, Jane Feibel, Lauren Doroche, Robert Wilfong, Robin McDavid, Sam, David J.J. J. Newsom, Oi Ung, Chris Roberts, Media Roots Radio with Abby and Robbie Martin, Kirsten Lamb, Monroe Labuis, Katya, Ichiba, Rai Y, Anne Marie Lonsdale, Nicole Morse, Nina Moses, Sam H., Mark S. Featherstone, Charles McLaughlin, Jack Sadler, Sparky Abraham, Tor Lindblom, Marios K., Jason A. Baber, Maureen Whelan, Ross Kennedy, Michael O'Connor, Yulia Gilich, Sam Mess, Anna Viznitskaya, Nancy Schaefer, Anika Garcia, Candice Archer, Julia Amin, Kristaline Faith, George Kachadorian, Adrian Renix, Daniel Tobin, Eitan, El Heath, Kristen Hiland, Nicholas Rennie, Paul Roditi, Peter Golbus, and Tim Volker. Thank you.